Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera here um, on the Feminist Book Club podcast, and I'm joined by some really amazing folks. I'm Ra Hernandez. And I'm Lily Gardner. Thanks so much. I'm so glad that you are here to talk about Sirens and Muses by Antonia Angres with me. And I could be mispronouncing um, Antonia's name. I don't uh, know. This is a debut novel and it came out, I think, mid-July. And a really beautiful, beautiful cover deals with students, uh, art students, deals with the art world. There are four main characters that we're looking at. We've got Louisa Arsenault, who is French, Cajun student, art student. There's Karina Piantek, who is uh, sort of almost an art world heiress and a fantastically talented artist in her own right. And then there's Preston Utley, who is a sort of up and coming new, new art world kind of artist. And there's Robert Berger or Berger. I'm not sure how the um, character's name would be pronounced, who is of sort of like the older set, uh, did political art and uh, sort of became well-known for a really controversial piece of art that depicted a close friend of his on his deathbed. He's like the the art father of Preston. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really feel like the two of them are, on, are the same person, but in like different places in their own timeline, mm-hmm. you know? And so the book follows these four characters in 2009. So this is like right at the recession and it follows them from their time in art school to uh, when they all leave that and start going on their own different tracks, which happens mid-semester, I think, uh, sophomore year for three of the characters. And, and Robert was an artist in residence and he left sort of under disgrace. Is that about right? Yeah. I think the whole, the whole novel is within a year, isn't it? Mm-hmm. They move really quickly from art school into career life. So it's it's like a super fast exploration of the whole process. Yeah. yeah. And it was 2011 and it was at the height of the Occupy Wall Street movement, which led into the Occupy Museums movement um, and all the Occupy movements that were happening in that deep recession. Was it 2011? I thought it was mm-hmm. 2009 because of the swine flu epidemic. That's why I posted it. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, does it, I mean, I think that that whole period is like kind of a blur in my mind anyway. So I apologize, but yes. Yeah. Right around that. Yeah. Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Museums, a hundred percent. But what did, what did the two of you think of this book? I originally, well, at first I didn't like it. I thought that I was going to love it. So I picked it up because it takes place in 2011. I graduated 2011 and I had plans to go to art school that year. Um, and I was kind of in the same place as Louisa where like mom told me not to go. I should stay home, go to community college for a year and then move on. So it was interesting to see like Louisa's placement in that and like in her life being at like a privatized art college. And it's like, I, had a really hard time getting through that first hundred pages and it's right after like the last 200 I think when it started getting gay because I forgot that it was an LGBTQ book Mm -hmm. then I started to like it more and I think it was kind of that turning point I was like okay we're getting gay I like it (laughs) 
I, I hate to interrupt. I just asked you both how you liked it, but um, I actually have a post-it note on page 137 after the first sex scene that says, how are you doing, Ra? Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I know when we talked about on the, on the piece that we did for Mighty Networks, when we talked about uh, you made a fool of death with your beauty, uh, you talked a little bit about how you'd listen to it on audio and like some of the sex scenes you were listening to them at work and like you had like some feelings about that. And, and I'm not trying to uh, paraphrase or erroneously paraphrase yeah. what you were thinking, but when I read that first sex scene, I was like, uh, I hope Ra's doing all right with this book. I hope it's great. <laughs> yeah. You know, it worked out for me. It was like, must be all trauma based in my brain, you know, like, <laughs> oof. I can read uh, women loving women sex scenes. Great. Uh, otherwise, I think it's just not my cup of tea. It was really beautiful. They're really beautiful. <laughs> They're really beautiful scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they are. yeah the the last like two hundred pages, two hundred thirty pages were excellent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What did um, you think, Lily? Yeah. Oh, well, first I was just going to say, I agreed on maybe wanting some more like hints of that earlier, because I do feel like that was such, I mean, that's a really compelling part of the whole, like heart of the story. Um, but I understand how they needed time to get there or whatever. But yeah, I loved it. My mom is a painter and I like grew up with that in the house and like having the art studio and all the kind of life lessons about art and why you make it. And I think that this book does such a good job of covering so much of the art world just through following these four characters. And even though there are four main ones, it's I feel like Louisa and Karina are kind of the main, main characters. And I was like very impressed with how it just, you have all these different perspectives. Like I feel like Louisa is really about the art <laughs> um, and, you know, other people are more after the prestige or after the money, um, but also Louisa wouldn't mind prestige or money either. And there's kind of these questions of like, can you be an artist in a capitalist society without like having a brand for yourself and needing a brand for, is there a way to live without that? Is it possible to make art outside of capitalism? I think was a you know, definitely a question Preston has. Um, and it was also, I think, a, almost a question of, like, with Preston's character, there's a lot of look into the privilege that he has and that he, um, there's a section somewhere, I thought I had written it down, but uh, we're in one of his chapters, because the also the, the book is sort of divided, like each chapter is told from a different character's perspective, which was also fun to hop around. But um. Uh, yeah, that he's he's aware that he has privilege, but she's got it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, I know exactly what you mean, because I thought it was so notable that I marked it down, too. And there's mm -hmm. a quote. Um, I think this is what you're talking about. And please tell me if I'm wrong. But it says uh, Preston wasn't an idiot. He understood that his ambition to live outside capitalism was contingent upon the accident of his birth. And then later it says he didn't like the word privilege. There was something accusatory about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So I thought that was interesting that he is he's definitely aware of it. And the way that he deals slash doesn't deal with it, and also has these very like, high minded ideals of what art is supposed to be was interesting. Whereas I feel like Louisa was kind of on the other end of the spectrum where she was constantly worried about money and running out of it and needing to make it. Um, and that was almost like not, you know, something she had the 
time or care to even think about or consider. Like she's not trying to live outside of an art world. Like she wants to make art and she needs to make money to live in this world. So like she wasn't trying to like take down capitalism because she wasn't in a position to be thinking a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good observation. It, and and a lot of her storyline, because she is the only in this in this group of folks, she's the only financial aid kid. You know, she mm-hmm. has a friend who's also another financial aid kid, but most of the folks that she's interacting with are very wealthy trust fund kids or folks whose parents have really set them up uh, financially. And so there are a number of interactions that are minor interactions where that's really exposed, you know, like she can't go on some fun trips with folks because she can't afford it and doesn't know how to navigate that socially explaining that. And Mm -hmm. um, another part of her storyline is, is driven by her need to win this award so she can keep going to school and, and then try to figure out her life when that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting look too at, you know, you need a prize to do something. So now you're not just creating art because it's what you want to create, right? But it's like in order to achieve a certain amount of recognition by a certain type of audience, (laughs) which is what Karina has down. Karina knows how art sells and she knows what the market is looking for. And she's like, shamelessly, like that's what she cares about. Like she says that she just, um, that she's after prestige, that's what she wants. And she's really good at making art that will get her there. But yeah, that idea that Louisa has to win a prize and just to like support herself, basically, and kind of what that does to her art and what that in some ways, I almost feel like that had a positive influence on her because it gave her like a really strong drive to make something really good. Mm-hmm. What did you think, Monikita? I don't think you've said uh, how you oh, felt about the book. Did I, oh, yeah. Did I she hated it. Dodge that? No, um... <laughs> I really, really liked this book. I don't, I'm still trying to figure out if it's one of those books that I really love that I'm going to remember reading or not, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it, it's remarkable and it's interesting and I found it really engaging, but I don't, I still can't figure out if it's going to be one that I'm going to really remember like having read next year. And that, I mean, that's just sort of what happens when you read a lot of books, but I went to a, a private college and I was a financial aid kid, you know, and like, ugh, work study. Oh my gosh. Work study yeah. is like the worst. Same here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's such a drag. And, and I was surrounded by folks that were some of them pretending like they weren't from privilege, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and really absorbing that characterization and um, tried to sort of eschew anything that that even evoked a little bit, a whiff of privilege. And it, and it irritated me. And I think that's what irritated me most about Preston, actually. Mm-hmm. I really, it, in the beginning of the book, she said like, there are two camps, like people are either fascinated by Preston or they revile him. And I was like, I know which camp I'm in. Fuck that guy. Like, fuck that guy. I didn't, yep. I didn't like him before he like got all aggro. Like I, 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 I hate when folks feel like they need to be provocative because it like gets them attention, you know, and not because the thing that they're trying to do needs like needs the light shown on it. Mm-hmm. I uh, wrote one thing about Preston uh, mm-hmm. and it keeps ringing in my ear, but he tried to speak for the people when he wasn't of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I clearly remember. So Preston ran 
Tumblr blogs and t- the 2011 heyday of Tumblr. I don't know how familiar familiar y'all are with the social media Tumblr blogging. In that era, it was wild. I remember seeing ads or not ads, but I should say like art that looked like Preston's. Mm-hmm. Preston ultimately would have been somebody that 19-year-old art school student raw probably would have been into. And it, it made me mad. <laughs> it made me so <laughs> mad seeing that, seeing that. And mostly just thinking, it's funny how people grow. And it was nice to see the growth in Preston at the very end. And hopefully he can understand a little bit more about what it means to work in capitalist societies. But through and through, he just sucked through that with the book. I, I was curious to know if you to think that he is capable of like, is he going to grapple with his privilege and is he going to come out of this better or is he just continuing to find new ways to stand out or be different? Because even at the end, he was still making a ton of money off of what he was doing. I really think that he and Robert are the same person. I think he's going to follow a really similar arc to Robert, who also was a disruptor during his time and also wasn't making like very like I guess the book's take on it is that his art wasn't like remarkable or like, uh, like genuinely meaningful, but it like, it spoke of an era and Preston's art speaks of that era about like Tumblr art, mm-hmm. you know, but didn't move past it. And I don't feel like his art is going to really move past it. Like he doesn't, you see him like try to figure out how to make art when he's told to make different art than that. And like, he starts becoming the thing that he hates instead of like getting more in touch with the artist inside himself. So I think he's going to go along Robert's trajectory and end up with his old art dealer that ditched him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did, what did you folks think about the interaction between Karina and um, Brian? Was it the art dealer where he assaulted her? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it wasn't a fan. <laughs> yeah, just not a fan. Don't want that. Don't want to read that. But, you know, it happens. It's it had its yeah. place. Um, there's so many people in those fields that get taken advantage of, advantage of like that. And Karina being a 20 year old, it's not uncommon. I was just going to say, like, I actually think if that hadn't been in the book, that wouldn't have felt believable. Like it felt like something like that had to happen at some point. And I actually do think the scene where that happens was like, it was well-written and it wasn't like this, you know, overdone intensity. Like it was just kind of like what it needed to be. And then it's, you know, stopped. <laughs> I, I liked the way that the author did that. I did not mm-hmm. like that it happened, Yeah, but I agree yeah. with you that I feel like mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been there would have been a missed opportunity to address the prevalence of that Mm -hmm. if it had been skipped over. And I thought it was important how she moved forward from that event and how complicated those things are. And that she was like, well, if I, you know, call the police or file a report that that's the end of everything I have going for me right now. And I don't want to lose that. And that's like her prerogative to not, you know, follow through on that and to, like actually continue a relationship with this person. And I think that's really hard to read, but it's also, it's such a like nuanced, complicated thing that happens to so many people all of the time. And so I think that was interesting to 
like tell that story of, yep, that happens and yep, it shouldn't have happened. But here's what's happening. Like, here's how she's moving forward right now. Maybe later in her life, she'll be like revisiting this as a lot of this story was actually very generational, you know, and dealing with like trauma from 40 years ago. So I can, I can see there being a sequel. (laughs) And it's almost like that moment did open Karina up to be able to reconnect with her mother and empathize with her mother and Mm -hmm. what her mom has been through. And if that didn't happen, they would have been, wouldn't have been reconnected. Yeah. And the the author is really careful too. I think a lot of times when we're, when we see assault depicted in media, it gets like salacious, you know, Mm -hmm. and this scene stops before it becomes too involved. And I don't want to say that there isn't still trauma. I'm not trying to Mm -hmm. downplay that at all, but it, it stops before the scene gets too involved. And if I'm remembering correctly, nobody saves Karina, but Karina, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, she extricates herself from that situation. And then she goes and she finds the, what she, what she needs to deal with it. And that's Louisa. And that's her mother, you know, Mm -hmm. she finds a way to like get past this early stage of it. And I, you know, yeah, agree. There needs to be like, a even if it's just a imagination, like a, (laughs) a, resolution to that for her later years down the road when she can I don't know maybe just like get higher pressed into like graffiti the guy's building or something there'll have to be a a book too that takes place during me too instead of occupy yeah yeah yeah. it'll take down brian it's like I was very proud of uh, her puking on the desk okay (laughs) that's what it was she puked on the desk and when they would leave Yeah, that was another thing I appreciated just about like the craft of how that scene was done that, yeah, she, the author really just made it be like what it needed to be like, you know, for it to be a bad scene, um, but without going overboard and without like being unnecessarily like gratuitous or traumatic. But at the same time, um, like Marikito was saying, it still is traumatic (laughs) like um and to kind of show a scene like that that the character does carry with her and does have to you know still deal with because I think we do tend to think of sexual assault in like really black and white terms of like oh well it it, you know didn't go all the way like whatever that means um and so that idea that even if it's like an attempted assault that's still an assault like it's still uh, very traumatic so I appreciated that just in like you know, from a representation standpoint of showing the, that story and the complexity of that experience. Yeah. Well, I think we're like coming, we're coming up against um, time and I want to be, you know, respectful about like any last thoughts either of you have about this book. Hmm. Made me want to go sketch something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I really liked reading all of the, just the art scenes how everyone's painting and finding their ideas and every character really had their own like internal art world. So I like the, you know, the diversity of that within people's brains and creative minds and also how much she was showing of like the external world. Um, It reminded me a lot. I don't know if either of you have read, uh, I think it's called seven days in the art world. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I got to the end of the book, she actually does, um, mentioned that as like inspiration 
And that's the nonfiction book where like each section is just kind of like a fly on the wall account of like someone's life in the art world. And it's kind of all of this stuff, like all this, these contemporary art houses where there's a whole bunch of employees creating the art um, and like the auction places and all of this. And it's really a very, very crazy culture and brings up a lot of interesting philosophical questions. So that my mind was kind of in all of those places as I was reading, but yeah, I, I really loved this book. I just want to say, don't be a Preston. Uh, don't don't be a predator disguised as a social justice warrior we have enough of those in this day yeah oh you're yeah. here absolutely I would cheers to that if I could <laughs> yeah I really liked it I really liked it there are a number of people I want to I want to press this book into their hands but I I think you know overwhelmingly it feels like two parallel stories to me there's a story with Preston and Robert and then there's the love story between Louisa and Karina and I really really loved that love story I mm -hmm. thought it was me so too. beautiful and it didn't take predictable turns and um it was uh lovingly depicted and I and I just think this is a fantastic book it's like a love story of muses they're yeah. each other's muses yes so who's sweet. the siren and who's the muse uh i don't know i was trying to read that beginning quote Louisa. in the book and i could not decipher it i feel like well this is like really simplifying the novel but i would say louise is the siren and karina's the muse yeah. but they also serve as that for each other so maybe that's the point they do ah. they do it's like who's a siren and muse for Preston? Talking about it. Well, thanks so much for joining me so that we could talk about sirens and muses and uh tell the Prestons of the world to fuck off. We don't need you. Um nope. if folks are looking for me online, I am on Instagram at O underscore Murray. And I'm also at Instagram at the Sarah with three H's. And uh, same same location at Lily Gardner. That's L I L L I E. Fantastic! Thanks so much, folks. And until next time, be well. Hello, everyone. I'm Jordi Macbeth, and here with us today is Riley Bohr, the author of All My Love from the Trenches, which was published in August of 2021. And she has a sequel, Send My Love to London Town, coming out fall of 2022. Riley, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. I just got to say, I read your first book, absolutely loved it. I think your writing is beautiful and it's completely captivating. So could you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your books and maybe what inspired you to write them? Yeah, so my first book, All My Love from the Trenches, is a historical fiction. It's set like right at the onset of World War One, which is kind of a time period you don't see a lot in historical fiction, but I thought it was I thought it was significant enough that more historical fiction needed to be put in that era. So I was like, let's drop some characters here and see what happens. Um, and basically it's about these two families. One is wealthy and one is not um the children from both families have kind of grown up together, um, become friends and developed relationships kind of despite the socioeconomic differences. And obviously those relationships kind of blossom into more things, which 
can complicate matters in Edwardian England. But then when the war starts, that that becomes the primary complication. So basically, once the war starts, they all go their separate ways. A few of them enlist. Some are not able to enlist. They're not accepted for enlistment. Some become nurses. And so these children are kind of all scattered to the winds. And so they rely on letters to kind of keep them together. And then, you know, their lives kind of unfold because, you know, life doesn't stop just because there's a global tragedy. So yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a whirlwind of some chaos and some life and some heartbreak and all wrapped together in a little book. Yeah, I can definitely attest to that. I, like I said, I fell in love with the characters and the story And there were definitely some parts where I was like, oh, heartbroken. Can you give us a little bit on what we can expect from your second book? Yeah. So the first book primarily focuses on um, Samuel Perry, who is the gardener for the Harlow family, and then Lillian Harlow, who's the middle child and the only daughter of the Harlow family. It's primarily Samuel's story. I always think of him as the protagonist, although it does shift between three different points of view. So it has Samuel's point of view and then Lillian's point of view and then one of Lillian's older brothers James his point of view as well um so that's kind of the setup of all my love from the trenches um send my love to London town I really wanted it to be the same cast of characters introduce some new people but we're kind of starting life after the war is over so the prologue will jump in like the day war ends is pretty much your prologue And then we get a little bit of a time jump. So we're into spring of the following year. So it hasn't even been a full year since the war ended yet. And this story is primarily Nellie Perry's story. So this is Samuel's little sister who, once the war started, she went and became a nurse in a London hospital. And this this book is three points of view as well, but it's between Nellie Perry, which was very interesting to tap into her head because I didn't get to do that in the first book. And then James Harlow, who has carried over from All My Love from the Trenches. But then we also get a little bit of Jonah Winlin, who had an interesting, an interesting um, trajectory in All My Love from the Trenches. And he has another interesting trajectory in Send My Love to London Town. So that's kind of the setup for book two. All right, I'm even more excited because I want to see what happens with Jonah in this one. (laughs) Um, So for people who may be interested in writing books, what is your writing process or like where do you even start if like you're giving advice to somebody? Yeah, I think honestly... The, the piece of advice that I tend to tend to give first, and it's a piece of advice that I got, this is not something that came from my brain, <laughs> um, but is if, if you have a story that you keep asking yourself like, oh, well, what if this happened? And then what if this happened? If you have a story that's kind of tugging at you, maybe like you need to write it. Um, I got, I got that piece of advice from from somebody that I love and cherish as a mentor. And um, they were just like, you know, if you have, if you have a story in your head that you can't get out, maybe you need to be the one to write it. And that's really daunting because you're like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to do that. But honestly, you're a writer if you write. So don't be scared to write something big, I think is the biggest thing. Um, My writing process is kind of, 
<laughs> it's kind of interesting. I feel like I tend to like revising a lot more than I like drafting. I always joke that if I could get someone to like write everything in my head and create the first draft for me, and then I could just go in and make it prettier, that would be great. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I I don't know if this is normal, but I know a lot of people who don't write from like front to back of the book. I cannot do that. I have to write chronologically. I have to write like event to event in sequence or else it just like messes with my mind. Cause then I'm like, how do these two things that I just wrote even connect? How do I make them? How do I bridge them? So I always have to write chronologically. And honestly, I feel like I'm such a big deadline writer. Like if I know I have a deadline coming up, I, I can sit down and write like 5,000 words in a night. Like I, that's kind of just, I, I live on deadlines. So that's kind of what drives me a little bit, but yeah, I normally write in like big bursts of time. Like I'll sit down for maybe like, if I have like a two hour session, I'll try to crank like just as much as I can in that time. So that's kind of how I write. I <laughs> just kind of, kind of fast and furious. <laughs> <laughs> so do you give yourself like little deadlines? Like, okay, by X day, I want to have like the first three chapters or would it be like the first few scenes? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. I I definitely try to give myself little deadlines and sometimes sometimes I have to to change what I'm doing. Like I do love to write in sequence, but every now and then I'm like I don't know how I'm going to get to point A to point B, so maybe I need to write point B and then I can mm. write the bridge. <laughs> um but yeah, like sometimes I'll give myself little deadlines, but sometimes the looming deadline of like your whole manuscript is due is the one that really drives me because I remember when writing Send My Love to London Town, um, I had the deadline looming towards me and I really, really wanted to make sure the entire manuscript was written so I didn't have to write anything extra later. Um, and <laughs> there's 26 chapters plus a prologue and epilogue in Send My Love to London Town. And I was on chapter 18. I had written through chapter 18. I had no idea how many chapters were going to exist. And I wrote from chapter 18 through the epilogue in like two days. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes the looming threat of like a really big deadline is, is more substantial than like little deadlines. <laughs> um, so with writing historical fiction, I'm sure there's a lot of research, just like any book, there's a lot of research that goes into writing it. What is the research process like? Yeah, it's, it was a lot easier for all my love from the trenches. There's lots of, there's lots of awesome literature on various aspects of the first world war. Um, like one of my favorite books that I uh, read for that was actually just a compilation of love letters that were sent back and forth from like soldiers and their wives or their families or whatever it may be. Um, it's just like a tiny compilation of those letters, which is also really it's just really sweet and really awesome. But some of them are really hilarious, which I thought was just really funny. And then another one was over like the Christmas truce, the famous Christmas truce of World War One. So there's lots of good literature on on World War One. So that I had lots at my fingertips. I feel like for Send My Love to London Town, it was a little bit harder because I really wanted to function in that time period right after the war and before the 1920s cuz like everyone know everyone you know thinks oh we go from world war 1 straight to the 20s which i mean it moved quickly but there was kind of that that in between time of everyone being like okay what do we do now um so i really i really wanted to function in that space and there's not 
it was hard for me to like really dig and find things that existed in that in that time period specifically. It was really interesting. Um, Cause I was like, yeah, I love the twenties and like, I know what's coming, but my characters wouldn't. So just kind of like getting in that mindset of like, okay, I can't, I can't tease the twenties too much because my characters wouldn't know the fullness of the decade that's coming for them. Like we do, but they wouldn't. So yeah. So that research was a little bit harder to find and to, and to dive into for the second book. Is there, I'm just curious, is there anything that you found between like the end of world war one to the beginning of the twenties that you either didn't know, or you found really interesting that you were going to make sure to include in your book? Yeah, if I, I can think, ask. yeah, for sure. I think a lot of it was, um, the, the recovery process that still took place for soldiers in that time. Cause obviously by the end of world war one, the world had kind of accepted shell shock, um, as a prominent, as a prominent deficit for, um, for soldiers, they saw it as an actual disability that soldiers would, would have. I mean, obviously at the beginning of the war, there was not that understanding of, you know, what we now know as PTSD, but the, the end of the war was actually really substantial for like mental health strides for, for soldiers because shell shock had become so accepted. So, um, I, I really wanted to research that. Like I researched lots of, um, like lots of shell shock treatments, which some of them were so obscure that you were like, how would anyone ever think that this would work? Um, like, like the biggest one, big one that I saw was like electric shock therapy. They would just think like, Hey, if we shock you enough times, then maybe the shell shock will go away. Um, which is like totally crazy, but I do allude to that in the book. So a lot of it, a lot of it in Send My Love to London Town, I, sh- I show Nellie kind of struggling with seeing soldiers not necessarily like bloodied and torn apart the way they were in the first book, but they're still very broken and they're still very damaged and they're still healing. So kind of that process in between the end of the war and the twenties is, was really interesting. Wow. Yeah. That is intense. I had no idea that that was one of the treatments for PTSD back then. All right. So getting into more of the publishing side of things, you're self-published. So what is that like? Yeah. So um, I got connected to a publishing program um, called the Creator Institute when I was first looking for a way to publish because I graduated from college in 2020. So right in the middle of the pandemic and (laughs) plans A, B, C all the way through Z had gotten canceled and were just kind of shot up in the air. Um, so I found myself at home with no plan, but one of my, one of my really good friends who was actually my roommate in college, she had just written a book through this program. And so I just like randomly called her one day and I said, Hey, you wrote a book. How do I do that? (laughs) And it's the, it's this really awesome program where you, where authors and we get authors from all kinds, all walks of life, all ages who, um, all genres, and um, basically the Creator Institute is like a uh, however many week long class kind of teaching you the fundamentals of like how to write a book, how how to meet your deadlines and how to develop character and how to find the arc and all the, all these things. And then um, you work with a developmental editor and then eventually leading to a green light. And then you kind of get moved over to 
new degree press when you go and you start going through the publishing process. So that's where you like start your revisions and all that stuff. And, you know, the system looks a little different from when I started it. Obviously, a few things have changed and we've developed a few new ideas and it, it, it functions a little differently than when I went through the first time. But that's kind of the system that I that I worked through for my first book. And then I decided to hop on pretty quickly after after my first book was published to go through the the Creator Institute again and then go through New Degree Press again. So, yeah, so I published in August and then my like classes for my next round started in October for this book. So I really, I really just jumped right back in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So with this program, do they give you like an editor or you doing your own revisions? Yeah. So you actually work with a handful of editors throughout the process. So when you're in creator Institute, you'll work with a developmental editor, which is really nice because they kind of just, they kind of get you out of your own head and help you kind of ask the questions about, you know, what would this character do? And what do you think the end, the end game is for this chapter? How does it contribute to the end game for the book? Um, They kind of just work with you as you're, as you're developing that first draft. And then once you have that first draft and you are, you're accepted for publishing, then you work with a, a marketing editor and a revisions editor to kind of help you just work through um, like the, ins- the things you don't think about when it comes to publishing a book. Like I just had to write like the synopsis for like the back cover of my book. And I had to write my author bio, which you would think those were two of like the easiest things. And I had been putting it off and pushing it off all week. Cause I was, I was talking to my revisions editor and I was like, I don't want to do it. It's terrible. Um, but yeah, so just kind of like those things that you wouldn't think about, um, writing a book, but then also, helping you revise that first draft that you developed with your developmental editor. And so then you start moving forward. Dang. Yeah. So how long does it typically, or I should say, take you to write from like the beginning to seeing the finished product? Yeah. So I started writing this book. Um, by this book, I mean, send my love to London town. I started writing this book um, pretty soon after the first one was published because almost every single one of my editors was telling me that people were going to want a Nelly story. I was planning on doing like a one and done. And that was, that was, this was going to be my book. And I had every one of my editors tell me that they thought people were going to want to know about Nelly. And I said, and I said, okay. So I kind of started fiddling around with it kind of just developing the idea, thinking about where the story would go almost immediately after after the first one was published. Cause I was like, okay, what do I do now? Um, <laughs> and so I started writing before my classes started. So I probably started writing in September, finished my first draft around December. And then you wait for a little while. Um, and then I got matched with my uh, marketing and revisions editor. I got matched with her in March. And then we worked for about two months on revisions. And, um, now I'm at the stage where I can't touch it anymore. Now I'm at the stage where I'm like no new content, which is, which is kind of a relief and nerve wracking all at the same time. But yeah. Yeah. Do you ever like, go back and look at your stuff and think like, oh, like if I had put this in there or I would change this a little bit. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, there's definitely like sometimes I'll I'll like handwrite just like some dialogue or a line that I 
thought of randomly. And sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll go back and look at those notebooks and think, oh, maybe I should have fit that in somewhere. But, but I end up loving the finished product so much that I, you kind of forget about the stuff you wish you would have put in. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. What are some pros and cons to self-publishing? I think in the way that I self-published, which, um, the way that I kind of self-published, it's, it's called like hybrid publishing, which is kind of a mixture of self-publishing and traditional publishing. So like working with an editor versus like maybe having to hire that yourself. So it, it functions a little bit like both in certain areas. So I think, I think at least in my version of, of self-publishing, I can't speak for, you know, the wider self-publishing world, but I think um, it gives you a little more, it gives you a little more freedom. It gives you a little more time to just like explore what you want to do with, with the story. I think that it gives you a little more of a sense of community. Indie authors are like real gung-ho for other indie authors. It gives you like a really awesome community of people, um, specifically in my program, but also on like social media, like Instagram's like a really, really fun place to find other indie authors. And I've found like some great people that now I'm like, oh, we're friends now. That's so fun. So yeah, so there is a very sweet community that exists for, for self-publishing. I think, I think some cons on the, on the flip side of that, like you are doing it pretty independently. So it can be a little isolating. It can feel a little lonely sometimes. Um, yeah, but I also think that's kind of something that exists for most writers and creators in general. We're, we tend to be very introspective people. So I think I think sometimes loneliness kind of just comes with being a creative person. But yeah, I, I love the self-publishing world. I think it's a really special place. But yeah, not no shame against traditional publishing. I think everyone dreams of getting a big book deal. I think that's kind of always the always the dream for for authors. So yeah, and I think it's awesome. Like nowadays, there's so many different ways you can go about getting your work published and getting your stuff out there. So it's awesome that all of this exists. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like people consume like fan fiction all the time now. Like people just put it out, and I'm like, please write a book. Please do it. You can do it. I promise. So yeah, there's so many ways to to write creatively and ha- and let other people have access to your work. And I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said from the beginning, I'm really excited for your next book to come out. I've been waiting. I know you've like sent out potential book covers um, and things like that. So I'm getting pumped. Um, <laughs> But I just want to thank you again for coming on and for being with us today. And if any of you would like to go and follow Riley Vore, you can follow her on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Riley M. Vore. And you can find me at, at Books on Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. 
see you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature. Creature.